0: all right welcome to another episode of stock talking my guest today is tim weber uh tim is the host of single stock spaces and writes the asymmetry infantry on substack um love the substack one of my favorite pods too like your spaces always teach me a ton so yeah i'm like super excited to have tim on the show and tim welcome to the show
1: yeah thanks for having me i listened to your podcast with uh, diligent dollar a while back and uh i kind of really liked your style of interviewing and that sort of thing and uh he's been a frequent uh frequent listener to the to the spaces and I'm hassling him to come on at some point. And so that's that's how I found you. And uh yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate
0: it. Awesome. Yeah. Diligent has some good ones. So yeah, I think you could you could take your pick of what type of spaces you want to do with him. Um but yeah, figure I know you've been on uh like Andrew walker's show and you've covered um Arch and Amplify and you know a ton of other names a lot. I kind of want to start off by asking you about your general process. Um I know you worked on the buy side for a while and kind of covered consumer there um, so yeah, I'd love to hear kind of about your lessons learned when you were on the buy side, like if anything comes to mind off the bat and then how your style today is a little different. Cause obviously you've shifted a lot towards the commodity space. Cause that seems to be the most interesting. And, and you know, I've heard you talk about there's the most opportunity there right now.
1: Yeah. So most of my buy side career, uh, frankly, so I spent roughly half of my buy side career as long only, and then half, uh, on the hedge fund side. Uh, but even, uh, even through my time uh, covering stocks as kind of a research analyst at a long only fund, I was braiding stocks long and short. So I would say the vast majority of my, of my career was, you know, picking a, a relatively well-defined call it, you know, 40 ish stock niche uh, and really trying to, trying to pick stocks long short. Uh, and so what you learn, what you learn doing that endeavor uh, is really how to do, to, to be good at that game you have to have the world's best understanding uh, in an insanely precise manner on a small amount of stocks. And so, you know, you'll generally find that the guys and girls that are covering, uh, you know, a sector uh, at kind of the big name hedge funds, long short, uh, they're going to have the best models. They're going to have the best understanding uh, and and kind of they'll probably have the best understanding of where management's heads are at, you know, any sort of alternative data, they'll be be all over that and how it kind of impacts the near term. Uh, And so with all those things said, they generally also have the best understanding of the stocks and and call it the next year or two. Uh, And so, look, I think the one nice thing is, is when you see what great work looks like at a very precise level, it actually in a perverse way also helps you understand when you can get to the edge of the 80-20 rule right? Because you'll know when you were picking up those stocks in the past, okay, I learned, you know, I learned, you know, most of what I needed to know at this level of diligence, right? And then, you know, to get to the last 10% took 99% of the time, right? You know, the nice thing is, I mean, I manage my personal portfolio right now, and my stated objective is to go anywhere. Uh, So, you know, with that sort of backdrop, I'm looking for risk rewards that, that my, I mean, my goal is to find risk rewards that punch you in the face. And often if you find a setup that punches you in the face, you know, you don't need to go that far past the 80-20. So in a weird way, I would say the real comfort and the real crossover lesson uh, from being, you know, being the guy that was trying to know the stocks better than anybody else was where you can stop. It's a really it's it's counterintuitive in a way, but that's kind of the lesson that it helps me. It helped me get comfortable when I was picking up new 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 sectors in the last couple of years.
0: Yeah, if that makes sense, I'm sure. Like shaving off that twenty percent that oftentimes takes the longest saves a ton of time. I'm um, interested to know, like once you source ideas and you take the time to get comfortable at that point, how do you identify? Well, this is an incredible risk reward opportunity. I want to make this one of my top ideas. And I saw in your A and too, you have like. A, seven positions or so it may have expanded now, but obviously that's a pretty high threshold um, to get into where you would consider actually taking a position.
1: it's yes, yes. I, I have, uh, I think I have eight in the portfolio right now. And so I really try and take focused, big, big bets, you know, uh, who, who who would I be to not listen to the advice of Joel Greenblatt? Um, so, you know, and, and frankly, you know, if you're, if you're doing this and you have a day job, there's only so much time in the day. Right. So if you're, if you're going to try and actually know your stocks and then have thirty in the portfolio it's no longer uh, you know it's no longer something that's achievable so um yeah look I would just say it's a high hurdle to get into the portfolio it's actually it can be interesting at times because you know I have it's funny because everybody just just because the, I've been talking about commodities so much lately um you know <laughs> you would probably have a different impression of kind of what my investing style is based on that outcome and what's in the portfolio right now versus what the way I'll probably manage it over the long term. I'm really attracted to, you know, kind of special situations. Um, just to throw out a couple of names that, that I had in the portfolio uh, in the past call year and a half, two years, uh, Luby's, which was a, a restaurant liquidation. Um, uh the Talbman preferreds, which was basically a broken preferred, that, that if their broken deal with Simon uh, ever got kind of repriced or back on the table, you were going to be paid out at par. And so, you know, just, just and I give you kind of the two starkest examples that are completely different than what I'm doing right now to say that, you know, that just the commodity stocks that are in the portfolio right now are not necessarily... Um, What it might look like three to four to five years from now. I mean, in the case of some of those names, I just like them so much because they have relatively well defined downsides in the sense that they're going to be gushing so much cash in the very short term that get a look and it's actually happening with Arch right now. You know, I walked into that trade really feeling very comfortable about the downside because of all of the cash generation that was coming. And yet you essentially get a free look at the duration of the commodity price boom, boom. And so that's what's happened, you know, with metallurgical coal. Um so so Arch Arch has is most of their EV is is related to metallurgical coal, but they also have um uh, you know, kind of last five to seven years of life thermal coal output as well. Uh, but anyways, you know, it, it's actually been after buying the stock that I've gotten kind of this free call on duration, and, and it's happened in a, in a way I could have never predicted, even in the last six months, the, the duration of the kind of the first decile price environment that metallurgical coal has been in for, for, for now a very long time.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. I guess on these kind of special situation setups, and you know, I'm sure we'll talk about Ampy later, but it's interesting to me how you were following that before, and that turned into a, a special situation with the <laughs> Yeah. I, uh, yeah.
1: Un, 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 unintentionally.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I, I, it'd be interesting to hear how do you actually find these special situations, or if you're just looking for names in general, I mean, do you use a screener? What, what does your process look like for sourcing new opportunities?
1: You know, if a lot of them... I would. I don't do defined screens at the moment. If I were a professional, I absolutely would. Uh, but the, frankly, my my to do list of stocks to look at is so long right now that throwing you know throwing a quantitative screen on top of it, I think would drive me completely crazy. So, but I would say you know one of the one of the first things that I'll look at um, would be way more towards the line of call it a Google News search as opposed to as opposed to a quantitative screener. So if you think about the way that alubies would would kind of pop up on that, you know, liquidation, real estate value, uh, you know, that sort of thing. Um, frankly, just between my prior coverage, where I sort of follow what continues to go on in the industry. So so Simon and Talvin was really just about the fact that I had covered mall reads for a couple of years. And so when that deal was broken, when that deal was busted, um, those, those preferences, just, you know, it, it was, it was because of just kind of following what was going on and tangentially to all these industries I had covered in the past. So a fair amount of stuff falls out of just that, you know, it's not, I was going to say screen, but it's not a screen. It's literally just keeping in touch with sectors I've known for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I would say I don't have anything that's particularly formal on the idea generation phase. I mean, the the uh, the amount of ideas that I have right now, particularly after starting to do single stock spaces, uh, are, are just far too great for me to ever get to the end of the to do list.
0: Yeah, I, I identify there just having a a massive to do list that never ends and, and grows larger, especially <laughs> with you know the internet in twenty twenty two. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I guess once you start getting to a name on your to-do list though, I mean, I think you've mentioned before it's like, you know, you, you kind of will look at it uh, and you know, to get comfortable and start to do more. Maybe it's 40 minutes and maybe a, a modeling exercise, but like, I'd love to know does that first initial like pass at it look like? Um, you know, maybe take the preferreds or some other opportunity you were looking at, like at what point are you like, okay, I've done enough work here that I'm going to make a larger investment of time and start to actually, you know, do real work, start asking questions, get on the phone you know, whatever, whatever the rest of your process looks like.
1: Yeah. Well, the preferreds are actually a bad example, just because it was so straightforward. The the kind of risk reward on those preferreds was so straightforward. It was literally, I get, or if the deal goes through, I just have to define my downside if the deal does not go through. Now, what was so interesting about those Talman preferreds is that the downside was incredibly well protected, at least in my opinion. Um, but that was, you know, I probably wouldn't have been able to say that without knowing the sector really well. I would just say if I'm picking up a new name that's completely new to me and I don't really know the sector, I'm looking for some mix of, you know, some mix of, uh, at least a couple industry primers to just figure out you know what's going on at a, at a very high level and then really just getting the case like understanding and trying to figure out if i can wrap my head around that pretty quickly is there something that's too complicated with me i'll just literally throw it out right um because it's just not worth the time of day right um Probably why I don't have any biotech or things like that in my portfolio, um, but so yeah, I'm trying to get into the filings pretty quickly, um, you know. And and if there's some if there's some mix of hey, what I'm reading about the company looks really interesting. What I'm reading through the primers, you know, looks looks reasonable from a top-down basis. Uh, my next step is usually to build a rudimentary model to just you know, figure out, like, I mean, look, most businesses have two to four drivers, right? Uh, but you've got to, you know, you have to figure out what those two to four drivers are and figure out if you can have any sort of uh, reasonable way to, to predict those drivers. And so I'm pretty quickly, you know, going to the next step, which is to build, you know, again, not the kind of models I would build back in the old day, but just something that, that helps me have expressive quantitative view on the, on the risk reward
0: yeah that that makes sense and I think yeah one thing that just came to mind the talking about the modeling exercise like I, I feel like when I usually get to this step, you know my own process like a couple of times, like I'll look at something and you know assume make some assumptions, and then I'll be like, oh, you know, based on whatever my terminal value is, like it looks like I'm getting like a nice discount today um and this this part uh, always has been hard for me, like you know you'll look back at the history of a company and say, well. It's never traded like close to there what have i missed or or what have I? what am i missing historically that uh like it continues to trade at this discount i mean one thing and i, I kind of mentioned to this you uh mentioned this offline like on the oil and gas space you know a lot of the pv10s you see or companies put out and, I, and you kind of talked about this on andrew's podcast um they'll often be like a significant discount to what the company says the valuation is um using you know pv10 methodology um, wondering how you kind of think about like if your model gets you to a value way higher than the stock price today, how you think about why that discount exists?
1: Yeah, I think uh, oh, that's that, that's a that's a big question. So, look, I'll I'll say this: the best reason for that opportunity to exist is because there's some sort of uh, there's somebody on the other sort of the other side of the trade um, that has non-economic reasons to be on the other side of the trade as you know, right so in the case of if you were to tell me that the reason why arch you know trades at an 80 percent free cash flow yield on uh, next year is because you know esg funds or or you know esg that i shouldn't say funds but just the esg mandate causes a lot of folks to just not even look at a at a company who even has a small thermal coal segment, right? Um, it's, it's hard to make an ESG case against metallurgical coal unless you literally don't want to ever have a, a windmill again, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, so if you were to tell me, look, the other side of the trade on Arch is all about, you know, is, is all about all the funds that have walked away from from kind of low ESG sectors and walked towards high ESG sectors, I would say I love that setup. Right, it's it's so much better when the other side of the trade uh, is there for for non economic reasons, as opposed to the other side of the trade is there because you know, uh, let's say I don't know, let's just make up a hypothetical. Oil is at eighty, and you're the only guy in the room that doesn't realize that there's this massive supply response coming, and you know what you think what you think is a stable uh, commodity price environment is about to implode, and you know that sort of thing. So I would just say yeah trying to figure out that other side of the trade is is
0: super important yep totally makes sense that might be a good segue into the double dog index because i think there's (laughs) some of that going on there where like you know the the reason these discounts exist are because either non-economic reasons or i think with double dog there's a bit of you know the traditional investing wisdom and you've written about this tells you not to invest in cyclicals when the pe's are low which is counterintuitive but makes sense because people think you know they're over earning at that point um, so yeah, let, let's, let's get into double dog. Um. You know, I think I, I, I kick off here by saying, um, you know, I, I the bears probably like, don't want to be long this index just because they think it's going to end uh, or this commodity ban will end much sooner than other people uh, expect. And like, you know, from my perspective, and we can get into this with Cole. Uh, yeah. I've listened to the odd lots podcast that Bloomberg puts out. It's pretty interesting. And yeah, they had some good stuff on like, oh, is you know China going to enter a hard landing or like what's going to happen with their uh, construction sector? So, that I mean, there probably are some decent bear arguments for why um, we could see like oversupply and things go south faster than expected. Um, but just want to hear kind of uh, like what your thoughts are on kind of how long this uh, kind of strange environment could last with uh, supply being kind of constrained and also like how long this environment needs to last for the trade to work. Because I think you may, you bring up some good points around yeah, you know, this doesn't even have to last that long, uh, for this trade to make sense and pay off.
1: Yeah. So let me give a little bit of background on the index and why I created it. I, I was really struggling with this notion of, okay, what you're expressing in art let's say that exists in steel, it exists in fertilizers, it exists in lumber to an extent it exists in thermal coal, it exists in shipping. Uh, you know, all, all across the landscape, the same trade at, at a very high level is out there. And so I was really struggling with, you know, why is it there? The common thread that ran through all of it, which is why I wanted to kind of create it just to tell this story as it's happening. Because so the common thread that runs through it is this market maxim of never pay, never, never pay low multiple encyclicals. You're kind of the sucker in the room that, that you know, that, that. That thinks that uh, he's identifying value and you're just identifying a late cycle trade, right? And so, and by the way, that market maxim has worked pretty well. But what I find so fascinating about it right now is that the rubber band is stretched so tight that, so, so in, in a good example, let's say, I mean, it doesn't matter which subsector you, you pick, but let's say that steel is at an apparent 30% free cash flow yield right now. It's not right. It's 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 insanely higher than that, um, but so okay, great. You know some some of the uh, uh, some of the competitors have a little bit more lag uh, in the way that their pr- kind of pricing flows through to their P and L, uh, but some of them are pretty much takers of spot. Uh, and so okay, if spot starts imploding tomorrow, um, which which it very well could. And you thought you were paying a thirty percent cash flow yield, which was really a twenty percent cash flow yield by the time that spot imploded. Oh, and by the way, uh, you know the good times brought a pretty material supply response, and hence, actually, in FY two and FY three, uh, your company is going to be you know generating no EBITDA. Let's say, right? That's how you get your face ripped off, paying a low multiple, right? But what's so fascinating about all these various subsectors right now? Is that in some cases that free cash flow yield on FY1? And in some of these, you can really model and, and be highly confident that FY1 is going to play out. In some of the cases, these free cash flow yields were over 100%. Now, of course, the stocks are working, right? So the numbers are coming down a bit. But it, again, that rubber band got stretched so incredibly far. Um, but it was the fact that this trade was available in so many sectors, which is why I kind of wrote that Substack article, because I just wanted to put, and I, I picked 12 names. And by the way, I got so much hate mail about when I left certain names out and it cracked me up because I said, by the way, this is not an actual index. It's literally just a way that I could write a Substack article. Um, so I picked 12 and could I have picked another 12? Of course, I probably could have picked 50 different names that fit into this bucket. Um, but I essentially said, are you gonna you know, generate a majority of your uh, market cap and free cash flow in the next four to six quarters? Do you have a clean balance sheet? Uh, you know, is your management team at least reasonable, not one that has literally you know stolen money from shareholders in the past, right? So I tried to screen out any ridiculousness uh but the ones that made it into the index are kind of a pretty p r expression on just taking the other side of this market maxim so that's that's the genesis and the background uh of that index, I think. And I probably, I pro- in, in giving you that background, I probably missed your actual question.
0: <laughs> no, no, I think you about covered it. I mean, and I, and I think, again, it's like for the bet to work, you know, you're talking about, even if you get sliced in half, some of these names is like 80% free cash flow yield, the 40, which you all take any day. I figured maybe it makes sense though to, to pick a name. And this is probably one of the only names where uh, the trade so far hasn't really worked in the index. And I, I'm cherry picking, and also I don't really know that much about the quarter they had, but let's take like US Steel, for example. Um, you know, I, I think they disappointed, and like people were a little concerned about the capex. Um, it definitely, you know, sold off quite a bit. Um, I know you've had like Jeremy Raper on your on single stock spaces a couple times. He had an interesting thread about like, oh, you know, this company needs an activist to to come and save the day. Um, but I, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on kind of what happened with U.S. Steel and if there could be any broader implications for the Double Dog Index in terms of like what would need to happen for this trade to not work.
1: Yeah. And by the way, I, I'll just, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that uh, I'm not an expert on all names in this industry. So my comments on US Steel will be uh, general comments and not, um, not uh, I won't be the world's leading expert.
0: totally fine. It, yeah. It,
1: yeah, yeah. So it's interesting because, and this is why I picked, you know, kind of, I tried to, if I was putting names in from a subsector, pick a second one. And ideally, if I had all the time in the day, I probably would have picked three, but it 's interesting u s steel and Stelco being in there at the same time are a really interesting dichotomy because essentially u s steel is i mean they 're generating enormous amounts of EBITDA but they they are reinvesting in a pretty material way uh to enter the electric arc furnace space, which is sort of the the more esg friendly uh um, steel making process. And so, so US steel is obviously all blast furnace now, but the way of the future is electric arc furnace, at least to the level that there's scrap steel available because you need, it's essentially scrap steel and electricity. So it can't be a hundred percent of the industry, but it can be, it can take share over time. So anyways, US steel has a multi-year large CapEx investment program. And so, yeah, you're not going to get the same capital returns that you are, um, with somebody who was not doing those sorts of investments, Stelco on the other hand is you know all in on blast furnace and it, as it seems they're literally just going to return cash. They've already kind of taken out uh, one of their anchor investors. Uh, I think they've bought somewhere just under 20% of stock already in the last six months. Uh, and so you know it's, it's, it's an interesting dichotomy you'll, you'll get to sort of test um, you'll get to test how intense the focus on capital return. It's interesting. I think when you write up a single stock, you're always obsessed over. Look, if they this company has to return cash to me, and you know it's got to be, it's got to be perfect, and they can't reinvest another dollar and that sort of thing. Some of the really intelligent um, folks in the room on steel, uh, I actually think it makes a lot of sense. Uh, you know, to to do what U.S. Steel is doing, and so they're obviously going to be a little more balanced, and you're not going to get the same capital returns. You're going to get Stelco. Um, but they might've bought their future as well. Right. And that duration is probably worth something. So look, it'll be, each one has its own nuance. Um, you know, uh, spot prices for steel are coming down. That's obviously one of the risks of this trade in general is just the market doesn't really sort out, uh, you know, when spot prices are going down the market doesn't spend a ton of time sorting out whether they're going to stop at a certain level it essentially just trades the stocks up uh, as a first order effect right um, that by the way it, from a, it, from a trading perspective that was always the thing that worried me the most about ours. so when China was really kind of constraining their their steel production in the in the last couple of months of last year um, it took it took the the local uh, check and he's in to see for, for Coke and coal down with it. And the stock was acting terrible in the face of that, right? I and mean, the market wasn't differentiating that, oh, by the way, prices have already been strong enough for long enough that next year is going to look amazing. The first order effect is always the stock going down with spot, right? Um, so you, you have to, you know, you kind of, you have to have uh, a very steely resolve to to ignore that in the short term because it can it's obviously going to be vicious for a lot of these names where the commodity is literally at the first decile.
0: Yeah, so steely it's, resolve. It's I like the podcast. Yep. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I actually didn't realize I was saying that until after the fact. So
0: No, I mean it's interesting you talk about kind of the first order effect in the market, you know, shooting first, asking questions later because I, I think In general, and this is probably generalization, like the market seems to hate any announcement of capex right now, and it it seems to be perhaps overly focused on some of these names on just capital returns to the shareholder. Um, Yeah, maybe this is an opportunity to to deep dive into Arch and like look at some of the nuance on Arch versus other names in the index. Um, So yeah, I mean maybe we could start with kind of how Arch thinks about capital allocation and maybe what makes it different from a U.S. Steel or some of the other names in the index um, in terms of like where it's been and where it may be going, um, with the free cash flow.
1: Yeah. So arch, I mean, look the, so they've discussed capital returns a couple of times in the last, in the last two quarters. Uh, the nice thing with arch is that you have history. And so the last time Coke and coal prices were so strong, the company returned something like $800 million of cash in, uh, 2018 and 2019. So there's a management history of, uh, you know, they didn't run out and do, uh, they didn't run out and buy a competitor. Um, they did push along a, a greenfield development, which <laughs> looks to likely generate probably more EBITDA than the than the CapEx in, in 2022. So they couldn't have timed that greenfield project better. Uh, you know, whether it's skill or luck is is irrelevant. Um, but in any event, my point being is the last time pricing was strong and they essentially returned, uh, enormous amounts of capital to shareholders. Uh, what I like about the ARCH story, I mean, that, that's a piece of it. What I like about the story is that, look, again, you get this look at these insane prices and this insane amount of free cash flow generation. But when you come out the other side, ARCH is, you know, first quartile uh, on the cost curve. And so, you know, as an example, they were basically EBITDA neutral, has the commodity imploded during, you know, the the couple of quarters after COVID. So they're low enough on the cost curve that as you come out the other end of this super spike, that's still a very real kind of call it normalized amount of value on the other end. And so, look, if you think that there's going to be a lot of cost inflation, so take these numbers as last year's numbers, uh, just because, uh, you know, well, there's many different reasons. Some some of the cost, some of your uh, kind of cost per ton uh, is gonna be sales price length. So obviously costs will be way higher next year, but let's just pretend we're talking about 21 cost structure. So you take an arch who's at, let's say, 65 bucks, and you think a normalized net back to the mine over the very, very long term is something like let's call it 100 to 110, right? So normalized coke and coal margins, 35 bucks, and they do 10 million tons, right? Um, that you know, so you PV that based on their the amount of reserves that they have. It's something like call it two billion dollars in value, right? Um, d- Depending, you can pick your own discount rates and you know all that all that sort of fun stuff. My point is, is that let's say you were wrong and that the real number is eighty five net back to the mine and not one hundred or one hundred and five. Um, okay, great. You know, you still, at at that point, you know, now you're talking about $20 normalized margins and maybe that $2 billion was like, you know, a a low one handle. Um, But, you know, you're not, um, you're you're not so, you haven't wiped out the entire value of this company. Whereas if let's pick a third quartile producer, right? Their costs are 75 or 80 per ton. And you were wrong on normalized there's literally no ebitda left up at that let's say the high third quartile of the cost curve and so you know what you thought was this whole two stage model where there was all this super spike ebitda and cash flow and then all this normalized ebitda coming out the other end well maybe there's normalized ebitda coming out the other end for arch and not one of their peers with a $20 higher cost structure and so so what i like about arch is that there's there's very real value on the other side of this super spike and it, by the way, it also allows you to build this incredibly simple model where you just model the super spike and then just say, all right, what's, what's a range of normalized values coming out the other side.
0: Let me ask a, a probably dumb question. Why does Arch have such a, uh, cost advantage relative to the peers?
1: Oh, it's just, uh, I mean, it's, there's 50 reasons at every mine, um, you know, in, in general, there's, um, that would be kind of a, a geologic question, as well as uh you know the 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 methods which you use to actually mine um you know they they have a good spot they were actually able to just do this expansion it was called Lear South like their their key mine for coking coal was Lear, and you know this one sort of is adjacent to the initial mine and that one hypothetically should come on at a cost structure a few dollars lower because there's there's you know some economies of scale there um So look, they're just generally well-positioned. Again, it's like geologic, geographic, uh, you know, uh, methods of mining, that sort of stuff. Um, And so the nice thing about coking coal, which is important for any commodity, is just that the cost curve is relatively steep. Uh, And so the differential between the fourth quartile and the first quartile is meaningful. Uh, which means that if you're a first quartile producer and prices are not so great uh, and hence the fourth quartile gets taken out, you know, then that's the supply response to a bad market. You were probably still making money down at that first quartile. And that's very meaningful, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's what gives you the confidence that there's a lot of normalized value um, in, in this company. So anyways, that's that part and by the way, I just think of that as downside protection, right? And so the fact that I have that downside protection in arch was one of the things that attracted me to the name most, by the way, in an upturn, it will not perform as well as the higher cost uh, cost per ton producers. It's just kind of formulaic. If you think about it.
0: Yeah, that makes sense, but you get the lower downside to to compensate. So it totally makes sense. Um, I, I guess another yeah. question on the peers, like, Yeah. I feel like whenever people talk about capital cycle stuff, they'll talk about, you know, the, you need to have a peer group that behaves and the entire sector needs to be careful about not overproducing. Um, you know, when you're, when you're following Arch, I guess they're reporting, uh, Tuesday, but like, are you looking at, uh, competitors quarterly calls and and thinking about, okay, like if the, if competitors don't behave well and get aggressive, uh, on production, like, does that actually impact the Arch thesis for me?
1: Oh, for sure! Yeah, absolutely. And look, there's a supply response coming in Metco that's that's actually uh, differentiated to the to the lack of supply response that's coming in Thermal. Um, that will eventually be a problem. Uh, I think it's something more like a, a kind of late 22 into 23 type problem. Um, but that, you know, I think of course, you have to have your head on the swivel with, with what competitors are doing. And because, of course, I mean, any bull market in commodities can be broken by a, by a supply response. Now, what's interesting is, you know, let's, you can't make that side, you can't comment on that side of the supply-demand equation without talking about demand. And there could be some really interesting things that are happening with, with demand, right? Um, I think one of the most bullish things for coking coal right now is that China, you know, halted the steel industry for three or four months, and here we are, you know, prices still stayed in their top decile of, of call it their 20-year range, right? And, you know, if that was transitory and China is stimulating similarly to the way that they've stimulated in the past, which is very kind of resource intensive and, and steel intensive, um, then, you know, we could we could be in for another couple of years of really strong demand. I think- yeah, um, yeah. My, my favorite resource follow is, is the koala. And uh, he's posted a couple of times this great chart of steel for, you know, I don't know, it's it's something ridiculous, 80 years or 90 years, you know, and it's totally just a function of global GDP. So I think everybody obsesses over China because, you know, China is responsible for something like 50% of global steel production. Um but, you know, it could get really, by the way, a big part of that has been kind of offshoring of manufacturing into China, right? So it's not as if, um, it's not as there's not reasonable um, logic to why there's such a huge market share of construction. But, you know, my, my general take is that steel is probably going to just keep following its relationship uh, to global GDP growth. And so, you know, that that demand, and, by, and then you've got bottlenecks, uh, COVID related bottlenecks that have restrained demand i think the, the obvious the the one to easily point to is is uh, auto production has been lower than it otherwise would have been if not for so many bottlenecks so look i think you know there's a supply response coming but i could paint a couple of scenarios where steel demand in the next couple of years is pretty solid
0: that makes sense yeah i like the asymmetric upside uh, there and as you mentioned with arch is interesting kind of because they're on that first quartile they have the downside protection too Um, Yeah, well, we still have time. I definitely want to ask you uh, about the kind of other trade uh, that I thought was super interesting that you talked a ton about on Andrew's podcast on uh, on Ampy. So, I mean, I guess that pod was in October and I think you've done spaces on it. But the Ampi story, obviously, like, um, you know, it's traced back a lot of the losses from the original spill. Um, So I'd love to hear kind of your update uh, since October and if that trade has become more attractive, less attractive, just how you're thinking about it now.
1: Yeah, and just to give the 30-second overview, so I basically wrote up Amplify as this really attractive uh, you know, cash flow generating business, trading at a huge discount to kind of its PV10, which is just the DCF of, uh, of reserves that, that it's kind of an oil and gas term. And stock was working, it was doing fine. And then they had uh, this crazy incident, which we still don't know exactly what happened, but it seems most likely that a ship uh, uh, at Anchor drug its anchor on their pipeline off the coast of California, which is literally the worst place in the world this could have happened. Uh, so anyways, those assets were responsible for call it um, let's call it 20 to 25% uh, of the value of the company. And yet just the headline and you know the 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 market's first reaction was to just destroy the stock. It got cut in half. Um, you know, and so there was all this uncertain legal liability um, you know, it really could have gone a, a couple of different ways. So, you know, rather than just totally freaking out, I just really started to dig in and look at past precedent and really think about each issue here in its own in its own way uh, to say, okay, well, this happened, uh, you know, but what do you do from here? And everywhere that I looked, whether it was the size of the incident, the insurance coverage, um, you know, whether or not they could ever operate this asset again, every single box that I checked things looked a lot better than just taking, you know, 50% of the value out of the company in a a heartbeat. And so I basically, I looked at that and said, and I think then I wrote another Substack piece and said, hey, by the way, the risk reward is now better than it was the day before the incident, right? Um, Because at that time, the stock, again, had been more than cut in half on an asset that was 20 to 25% of the value of the company. And I actually believe that that asset will be operating again. Um, and, and, and that's definitely my variant view on this on this, um, on this incident, is that I don't think a lot of folks feel as strongly as I do about that point. So I think um, you know, there's a really interesting catalyst if you hear from the, the key regulator involved here is the Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration um they basically the way that a spill works is they issue a corrective action order uh essentially the day after the spill that says you know shut your pipeline down if it's not already shut down and by the way to get this thing running again you have to go through this list of you know 50 50 boxes you have to check right i think what's actually happening in practice is that the company is just very methodically working through um you know working through all of these corrective actions they need to take uh And I think, you know, FIMSA is a relatively neutral, drama free regulatory body. I think at some point um, in the, you know, I I don't want to commit to a date, but I think some point in the relatively near future, uh, that agency will issue their follow up report, which is, okay, you can start the work. Um, You know, you can basically start the work to to replace the, you know, I don't know, 100 yards of pipeline you need to replace. And if there's not legal action, um, and, you know, California could potentially get in the way and file some sort of an injunction, which a federal federal judge would essentially have to overturn, uh, which could really gum up the works for a while. But if that, by the way, I don't think it's a winnable case at all. So I'm not so sure that California is going to waste the effort to do that. Um, so in lieu of that legal action, I think in a very reasonable amount of time, you could be operating that asset again. Uh and look, the, the the broader step back on this company is that you mentioned PV ten a couple of times. This company that had fifteen dollars of PV ten before, uh, you know, the recent run in oil prices, it's now probably something more like twenty plus, um, probably into the mid twenties, actually, just because this company is so unbelievably operationally leveraged. And so I think, you know, stepping back, you're talking about. 20 dollars of value for a stock that's trading at 450 and so if we really get to a place where we think this is fully covered by insurance and you're going to be operating this asset again i mean it's again i hate i use the term too much but this gets very asymmetric and very convex on the upside um with 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 a higher commodity price deck
0: gotcha yeah this also will will maybe come across as a dumb question but like I, i feel like for similar situations and I haven't traded many of them where you're like trying to size uh what the market says is like the size of liability versus what your estimation of, of it like the dumb way I've done it is like oh what was the stock trading at before and what was it uh, after um for ampi is it like accurate to say the market now has kind of said this liability is nothing because it's essentially trading at close to the same price as it was pre-spill or is that totally off base here
1: no, well, I think the way I'm looking at it it was five seventy five the day before the incident um and uh the commodity price deck has ripped since then, so my guess is it fair, would, yeah. you know had this never happened, it would probably be a seven eight dollar stock um and so you know it went from five seventy five I think it bottomed at something like two fifty to two seventy I mean it was vicious uh I think the stock's somewhere around four fifty something like that now, maybe a little bit higher um so yeah, I think you could argue uh, i would i would argue that there's still several dollars um of kind of uncertainty priced priced into the shares
0: that's very fair yeah I, I had in my notes that uh the p v ten from their deck that you mentioned they were assuming sixty five dollar oil and three twenty five gas so obviously i don't know we' we're, <laughs> yeah. we're way way up from there we uh, uh, yeah. we're a
1: fair a fair bit north of that now, and so you know it's you can you can get into intellectual debates about the duration but uh you know what it will do to the to that pv10 value is is pretty
0: much just math awesome all right i know we're coming up on time i wanted to ask before i let you go um if you have a favorite uh investing book podcast twitter follow or really any resource you think is like uh underused or underfollowed that uh, you think people should check out
1: oh boy um uh, that's a great that's a great question my problem is if I pick one, I'm going to leave somebody out. Here's what I would you say: you can do multiple. Points. I have, I've curated a pretty decent list of of follows, um, and, and they're still public. So I've got a, a two lists that one is called Markets and one is called Commodities, uh, and I've tried to do a decent job of curating those lists. And so everybody that I'm following um, uh, will be will be somewhere in those lists. Look, rather than a book, I I would say that the piece of investment advice that I always give to folks who are young in the industry. And it can get a little complicated with, with compliance uh, if you work in the business. But if you don't have a compliance issue, you, you have to start investing your personal account as soon as you can in your career. And you have to do real work and write your thesis down I'm a big fan of the rudimentary models, but, but maybe, you know, that's, that's kind of a matter of personality, but you've got to write your thesis down and then test yourself and look back and do, you know, postmortems and that sort of thing. And I can promise you if it's your own money, uh, there's no steeper learning curve than whether you're either making or losing your own money. And so that's the piece of advice that I give to anybody just starting out in the business um, that, that I, I really believe strongly in.
0: Yeah that's awesome and I I could do a better job of that myself uh because those pre-mortems often aren't there at the time of investment so it makes a ton very of it yeah. to sense yeah
1: yeah it's, it's very painful to look back at what you were saying when you were wrong but uh but yeah if you if you lost money and then you look back uh on a postmortem it it, it uh it it hits in a different way because you know you're you're the problem with the the human memory right is that it filters out a lot of unpleasant things and so you might think that you had a decent, uh, uh, different thesis walking into a trade that went wrong simply because of your memory and the way that your,
0: your memory uh, plays tricks on you. Yep. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, yeah, I know uh, we got to let you go coming up on time. But if you actually have like a couple more minutes, I did want to ask you, you know, speaking of different thesis, um, you, know, you had talked on Twitter recently about very earlier in your career, you had a formative experience with the um, Expedia TripAdvisor spinoff. And most of your firm at the time um, wanted to take the TripAdvisor side um, and you were, uh, you were pro- team Expedia. So I know it can often be difficult to be like the lone person kind of, uh, you know, arguing something when everyone's arguing something else. So I, I was super interested to hear about that.
1: Well, you know, it's funny. I didn't, I didn't hate TripAdvisor. Uh, I just was so much more interested in the Expedia side because there was this belief that they had just lost to uh, what well, was Priceline at the time booking now. So there was just this belief that hey, they had totally lost that war. Yet at the same time, what the company was telling you that they had really started to figure out conversion in a way that their, that their metrics were improving. And so at the time of a spin, and again, this goes back to our, the, the topic we were discussing earlier, you always, want, you always want the other side of the trade to be some, somewhat non-economic, right? And with spins, that, that's why spins are such an interesting area of opportunity is there's always some sort of dynamic there. And so Expedia itself was a pretty small cap coming, you know, coming out of the, um, you know, coming out of that transaction. And, you know, you had some people who might've been more interested in the trip side. So there was just, you knew for sure there were going to be unnatural sellers. Plus it was kind of a hated value tech name, which again, that's another one of those market maxims. Don't ever buy a value tech name. You're basically, you're just picking up the market's garbage, right? Um, you know, but but if you, you had to do diligence and you had to believe management. Uh, and of course, there are, you know, you're never going to get conversion metrics publicly, particularly not, uh, when was this, 11 years ago, right? I mean, there's a lot better ways to fact check management now than there was 11 years ago. So look, you had to, there was a little bit of faith involved because you had to believe what, you know, what their management team was saying. Um, but, it, it, and again, you know, I, of course I did all sorts of work verifying that that conversion improvement was real. Um, but you basically, you know, you had this trade where if that was real, uh, that fundamentally changes all the metrics and profitability of that business. And so you got it at this really low multiple, uh, all the cash, you know, all the structural cash generation, uh, uh, you know, bull cases of that business model were there at the time. So you had that yet you had an inflection in all the metrics. So anyways, so I, yeah, that one, I just always remember because it was pretty early in my career. And, you know, I was at a, a, a large long only at the time. So we bought, you know, a ton of the stock and it, it worked and then worked very quickly. So and some of those, I think the question was, what was your most memorable trade? And that one just always sticks out to me because you, there's something about, you remember what you did in your mid twenties. Uh, there's something about that period in your life when you, when you first start on the buy side that you kind of remember everything.
0: Yeah, that, that's freaking awesome. And I, I kind of love how it ties in with a lot of the other things you said about, hey, low low downside, high upside and sellers for non-economic reasons. So yeah, great way to cap off an awesome podcast. Uh, Tim, appreciate you coming on.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: righty, have a good one.